If you're like me, you've probably gone through different bouts of frustration with all the stuff we've gone through this year. Uh, Perhaps it's even bubbled up and it's become impatience and even anger in your life. Recently, I had the opportunity to sit down with four quality counselors and to talk to them about how we address anger and impatience and frustration in our lives. Anger is an indicator light. It's like, okay, I'm angry, I need to pull over, I need to sort this out and think about what is really happening here. Anger floods the brain and it fills us with a very strong self-protective instinct. We're operating in a part of our brain that's not able to think fairly clearly. It's not able to generate solutions to complicated problems. It's self-protective. So we say and do reckless things in anger. We all know as as believers that the Bible says, be angry, but don't sin. So we're going to be angry. You know, anger is a part of the grief process. Anger is a part of our own emotional exhaustion. We just don't know what else to do but be angry. We get frustrated in a relationship when we can't get what we need to get said out, or when we don't get our own way, or we just don't understand someone, uh, we get angry. And the truth is, we're part of a culture today that is angry about everything. Some people are very fairness, justice driven. And so if they feel like something hasn't been fair, something hasn't been just, that can be a match that just lights pretty significant fire. Oftentimes, one of the things that I see with regards to anger in the context of a home, the family members, spouse, is the experience of somebody is not feeling heard, is not feeling understood. And the more that goes on, the more intense the anger is. It might start with the awareness that I'm just angry, I'm ticked. And how many words do we have? It can be small states of anger like impatience or irritation. If I'm mad at you, it's unlikely in the throes of that feeling that we're gonna have a productive conversation. Sometimes when we don't process our anger um, in a healthy way, it comes out in other ways. It comes out in yelling at somebody, blaming other people, criticizing other people we love. They weren't even involved in what caused us to be angry in the first place. So anger finds a way to just seep out somehow. For some people, angry is their safe place. They feel more at home when they're angry about something, you know, about what's on the news or what their spouse said or what's going on at work. And a lot of times we justify our anger because we say, well, this is, this anger's okay because it's biblical that those people shouldn't be doing that. And so we beat people up with our anger and that's not right. I try my hardest to listen to what they are describing, what they are explaining whether it's a social injustice, whether it's the viewing of something on TV that just triggered them, whether it's the rioting, whether it's racial injustice, I try my best to to listen to what it is, but I also try and dig deeper. What uniquely about that topic is so intense for them? If you hurt me, I think I have basically two choices. I can get even, I can hurt you back, and I think that is my normal instinct. Or I can forgive. Surrendering the right to hurt back.
Good evening, everyone. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now or on your phone to go to Numbers chapter 20. If you don't know where Numbers is, it's actually the, the fourth book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And we'll be in the 20th chapter as we continue our series on hope for the heavy heart. We're going to jump into all that content, all that we have to say tonight. But before we do, a few family business things to deal with up front. Um, the first is this. I want to officially welcome you to winter in Southern California, right? Like tonight is the night. You've, you, if, if you didn't check the weather, you're like, I'm cold. And if you did check the weather. You finally got to break out your scarf, your big winter jacket. Maybe you lit a pumpkin spice candle on your way out just for good luck. But I want to uh, just make you aware, like, it's probably going to be like this for a little while here. So bundle up, come to church. It's going to be great. We'll get out here uh, and we'll worship Jesus together. Sound good? All right. Number two, um, want to make you aware that tonight um, we're going to, at the end of the sermon, we're going to be doing communion together. And so many of you, as you walked in, received one of these little handy communion packets. Um, if you did not receive a communion packet, one of these little things I'm holding in my hand, when you walked in, uh, we want you to have that right at the end of the sermon. We're going to be taking communion. If you don't want to take communion, there's no pressure. We're not going to force it on you. Uh, but if you didn't get one and would like to participate, uh, if there's a number of people. Can you hold up your hands or the bowls you're holding or something like that? like that just to say, uh, just go find some of these people. We'll get you communion. Again, we'll be taking that right at the end of the sermon here. Here's the third and final piece, and this is important, so I want you to kind of lean in on this one. Um, one of the things we're always well, I'll say we have been trying to do really since March is try to figure out how to best lead church in the midst of a global pandemic, in the midst of government restrictions, in the midst of all of the different things swirling around. Uh, and we're constantly learning and growing and trying to do better in the way that we do church. Um, the commitment we made since the beginning was we are not going to go further than the government allows. Like in other words, we are not going to defy the government unless the government keeps us from communicating our message, the message of the gospel, or accomplishing our mission, which is to make disciples. But we still do not believe that has happened. We've been able to flex and move and sit up here on a hill when it's cold and it's outside and all that stuff. We're fine with that. We're going to continue to do that. But here's the other commitment we made. We're not going to do less than the government allows. And here's what we've done. We, we, we've kind of re-looked into kind of how the mask mandate works in California and how it's been situated and how it's been articulated to the letter of the law. And here's the best way we understand that. That, that when it comes to masking, when you are outside and when you are socially distanced from other people, uh, which we have made every effort to do while we're out here, um, that it is permissible for you to remove your masks. Uh, and so here's the standard we're going to set. Here's kind of how our rhythm's going to go going forward. We're still going to ask you to bring masks to young adults. When you come in, when we're worshiping, when you're going out, when you're mingling, at the end, all of that, we're going to ask you to keep your mask on. Here is what we'd like to take a step in this direction. We'd like to invite you, if you're comfortable, no one has to do this, but we'd like to invite you, if you're socially distanced and outside, which you are, We'd like to invite you, if you want to, during the sermon time, and this will be going forward, to take your mask off. So if you're comfortable, you can go ahead and do that. If you want to keep the mask on, by all means do that. If you want to relocate yourself either during this service or other services to be a little further away, we understand that as well. Uh, but that is the invitation. We'll take communion at the end of the sermon. And then after communion, as we go towards singing, we are going to ask you to put your mask back on. Uh, again, this is not us violating the laws. It's not us violating anything. Uh, it's us adhering to it, not going further than what the government has, but not going not as far. So that's going to be the standard uh, during the sermon time. 
from this week on, going forward, uh, you are welcome to take your mask down if you are comfortable doing that, if we are outside, which we are, and if you are socially distanced. And so that is uh, what we're going to invite you to do, uh, and then we'll go forward with that. If you have questions about our approach to government restrictions, pandemic, all of these decisions, uh, I stand right out there after the sermon, and I would really love to talk to you about that if you have questions or concerns about what we're doing. Okay, make sense? Right on, let's jump into Numbers chapter 20. And so tonight, uh, you saw the bumper video, you saw these therapists, these counselors talking through anger. We're gonna jump into the subject tonight and each and every week during this series, uh, I've tried to emphasize that I believe God brought you here for one of two reasons. And that was either to speak a word to you about the subject we're talking about, or it was to speak a word through you to someone else who needs to hear it. And tonight, I wanna just add a little wrinkle to this. See, tonight we're going to talk about anger. We're going to talk about frustration. We're going to talk about a lack of patience. And here's what it's so easy to believe. What it's so easy to believe is that my anger is always justified. There's actually an emotion that we feel, and it's anger, that we feel more justified in than any other emotion. We just feel so right when we're angry. Anger actually feels good on some level. It's different than feeling sad. It's different than feeling stressed. It's different than feeling worried about the future. When we feel anger, there's actually this hit of dopamine where we enjoy the feeling of being angry. And so I want to invite you tonight not to dismiss this, not to justify your anger, not, not to imagine that somehow your anger is justified so this sermon doesn't apply to you again the God of the universe might have brought you here tonight because he needs to speak to you about something. And so I want you to listen in. I want you to lean in to see what God and I have to say through this story in Numbers chapter 20. And so it'll be up on the screen. If you don't have your Bible with you, I always want to encourage you to have that with you as we go. Numbers 20 verse 1 says, In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed in Kadesh. So let me set up the story for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Bible's narrative. Kylie was talking about it earlier as she introduced this song. The people of God at the end of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, end up in Egypt. And what happens over the course of many years is that that people of God grows to millions of people and they are enslaved in the land of Egypt. The story of the book of Exodus is the story of how God draws his people out. He rescues them from slavery. He rescues them from the bondage that they felt and experienced in Egypt. They cried out to their God and he rescued them. He brings them out of Egypt. He brings them across the Red Sea. As you heard earlier, the Red Sea splits before them and they go into the desert. They're in the desert and then they approach the promised land. It's supposed to be just a couple of weeks as they walk toward this land that God has promised them. And then they send spies into the land and they say, let's, let's go scout it out. If we got to go take this land, we want to know what type of people live there. And the spies come back and 10 of the spies report that it's too much. The people there are too strong. And ultimately what the people of Israel decide to do is not go into the land. They're too terrified. They don't trust God. And so God sends them spinning in the desert for 40 years. He promises that there's going to be an entire generation of them who are going to pass away in the desert. And then the next generation will be able to go into the promised land. So this is where we pick up our story tonight. The people of God have been wandering in the wilderness for decades. In fact, I want to show you this map on the screen. I know not everyone will see the screens perfectly, but let me show you this map on the screen. Uh, in the upper left-hand corner, you'll see Egypt. And that's the place they came from. It was the place they were liberated from. It's the place God drew them out of. In the upper right hand, am I seeing this right? Yep, upper right hand side, um, you will see um, the land of Canaan, the promised land, this land that God has promised to his people, Israel. So on the left hand side, upper left, you'll see Egypt. Upper right, you'll see the promised land. And here's where we pick up the story. You see where that little red loop is? 
like they're looping around and around and around in the desert. That's where we pick up the story tonight. They're not enslaved in Egypt, but they're not at the promised land. They're not where they once were, but they're not where they desire to be. They're not where they were stuck in slavery and crying out to God, but they've not yet received the promised land that God has for them. Here's the way I want to articulate where the people of God are tonight. And I think this is a significant thing for each of us to think about tonight. The people of God are in what we call the land in between. The the land in between. And, And here's what you need to know about the land in between. The land in between is where your faith is revealed. The land in between is where your faith, what the actual substance and content of your faith, it's where it's revealed. So here's what I'm convinced of. It's the moments between where God rescues you and you're in heaven. That's the land in between. That's where our faith is revealed. It's the moment between God starting something beautiful in your life and promising something wonderful to you and you seeing that through to fruition. That's where your faith is revealed. So, So here's what I've been convinced of. Like for a few months here, we've been living in the land in between when it comes to COVID, when it comes to a global pandemic, when it comes to our nation and our world and our society, we're living in the land in between. It's not March, right? Where we had no idea what was going on and everything seemed like it was collapsing, but it's not whenever that day is when things get to go back to normal and things ease up and things just get to go back to life as we know and love. We're stuck in between. And here's what I notice: What's happened over the last seven months is that people's faith has been revealed. It's revealed what's actually the substance of your faith. It's revealed what you actually trust in or who you actually trust in. And here's the question I wanna ask for you. And you get to assess this. You get to wrestle before your God and your creator on this one. What has the last seven months revealed about your faith? Like has the last seven months revealed the faith that you have that's filled with confidence and filled with joy and filled with peace and filled with strength, filled with courage and compassion for other people? Or if you're honest with yourself, has the last seven months just been this incredible time of anger and frustration and doubt and fear and worry and anxiety? Like what is this land in between? This weird season we're living in where we're not where we were, but we're not where we want to be. What is that revealed about your faith? Again, you don't owe me an answer to that, but I think you owe you an answer to that question. I think you certainly should wrestle before your God with an answer to that question. But like the real thing that's been revealed in this is it's like you're walking with a cup full of coffee, right? Or a cup full of something. And when you bump into someone that splashes out all over them, I think this season has actually revealed what's inside a lot of us. And I think for some of us, we need to do a heart check that our heart was not as rooted and grounded in Jesus as we hoped. What is the land in between revealed? about your faith. Uh, I want to show you what it reveals about the faith of the people here. Here's what happens to them. It goes on in Numbers chapter 20, or Numbers chapter 20 verse 1. It says there, Miriam died and was buried. So again, they're in this desert. They've been wandering for years and years and decades and decades, and they're just wandering around the desert, really waiting for an entire generation of people to die off so that the next generation of people can go into the promised land. And what happens in the midst of this is Miriam dies. Miriam is the sister of, of Moses and of Aaron, who we're going to see play a prominent role in this story. So, so what happens is they're in the desert, and someone they know and someone they love dies. And you got to think about it. They're in the middle of the desert. They're wandering around the desert. They don't get to have a proper burial for her. They don't get to do things they want to do. They've lost someone they love. And here's what we know. Loss is something that is going to bring about a certain reaction within our hearts. When you are grieving something, when you lose something, there's going to be a particular reaction that you have. Like therapists and psychologists will tell us there's like stages of grief, right? 
At one of the stages of grief, you start with denial and there's bargaining, there's anger is going to come up. And so here's what I want to present to you tonight. I want to present to you that what the people of Israel are experiencing is a certain kind of grief, a certain kind of loss, and a certain kind of experience that is going to trigger them toward anger. Here's what I want to show you tonight. I want to show you three triggers toward anger in this story. And here's the first one. It's loss. It's loss. It's grief. It's when you lose something that was precious to you. And that can be a big thing or or that can be a small little thing. But when you lose something, you are being set up to have anger. Like when you lose someone you love, when someone in the family dies, when you lose someone you love and care about dearly. It can be something even less significant than death itself. It can be losing a job. It can be losing an opportunity. It can be losing a roommate. It can be losing out on some experience or some opportunity you wanted to be a part of, right? It can be big things. It can be little things. But one of the things I want you to be aware of in your life is that every time you lose something, whether it's something wonderful or whether it's something really small in the grand scheme of things, you are being set up for anger. Anger is being triggered within you and you need to be aware of this. Like the most foolish thing you can do in life is pretend that you're never gonna get angry and nothing ever makes you angry. I want you to be aware that the first trigger here is loss. It goes on this way in verse two. It says, there was no water for the community and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. So here's the second thing that happens. First thing that happens is they experience loss. Miriam dies and now they're grieving and they've lost someone they love and that's stirring up anger within them. And what's the second thing that happens? It says that there's no water for the community. But like, this is a really serious thing. They are in the middle of the desert and there's no water for the community. I can't imagine all of the emotions they may have felt. I can't imagine everything they would have experienced in that moment, but I've got to be certain that at least one of them was a feeling of powerlessness. And that's the second trigger toward our anger. It's powerlessness. Trigger number two, when we get angry, we feel powerless over our situation, powerless over the world. Like there's a massive difference in this story between I'm thirsty and there's no water, right? Because I'm thirsty means I can go get some water and I'll quench my thirst. But there's no water means I don't even have the power to meet the basic needs of my own life. And here's what I want to observe. Powerlessness drives people crazy. Powerlessness drives you crazy. When you feel out of control, when you feel like something's going on and you don't have power over it, you can't change it, you can't affect the outcome in any way, it drives you crazy and it is a trigger for your anger. The first trigger we see is loss. The second trigger we see is powerlessness. It goes on this way in verse three. It says, they quarreled with Moses. If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into the wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. This is interesting, isn't it? Like their first complaint is like, why didn't we just die when everyone else died? There's been a whole generation of people that died off. I wish we had died. And then there's this complaint that comes up almost like they resent being liberated from slavery. The thing that they cried out to God for at one point has now become distasteful for them. In other parts of this narrative of the story of the exodus of the people of God, they're going to wish they were back in Egypt. They're going to wish they had the good things they had back in slavery. So so here's what happens If the first trigger for their anger is loss and the second trigger for their anger is powerlessness, here's the third trigger for their anger. It's resentment. It's resentment. 
And resentment is this unique thing where we feel upset at a situation and it's somebody's fault. You, you notice here, they're not blaming themselves. They're not blaming the situation. They're blaming Moses. You brought us here. You did this. This is on you. See, resentment is that feeling that comes up inside of us when a situation is wrong and it's somebody we know and love's fault. Like that's the feeling you get when something goes wrong and it's your mom's fault. When something goes wrong and it's your boyfriend's fault. When something goes wrong and it's your boss's fault. Like that feeling of resentment can start stirring up in us this feeling of anger. Resentment immediately can start triggering that anger within us. So let me do this. Let me review the three things I just said. What are the three triggers for anger? It's loss, it's powerlessness, and it's resentment. And here's the question for you. Can you imagine a time in your life where you've experienced these three things more than you have in the last seven months? Can you imagine a time in your life where you have experienced more loss, powerlessness, and resentment than you have in the last seven months? You think of COVID happening. You think of a global pandemic. You think of the response from our government. You think of all the things you've seen on the news, all the things you've seen in the world, all of the opinions you've had, all of the people we've lost, right? Like we're losing people. Like literally people are dying in a pandemic. People are losing jobs. People are losing opportunities. Some of you lost out on your senior year of college. Some of you lost out on your freshman year of college. Like when you lose something, it is a trigger for your anger. And some of you have lost something significant. Some of you have just missed out or lost out on something you were looking forward to. Either way, it triggers our anger. Number two is it fills us with this powerlessness. Well, like we've all felt this powerlessness. It's not like we can walk up to like, hey, Mr. Newsom, please change. Right? Like we don't have the power to do that. And so we just feel powerless. We feel like there's this whole world of government making decisions for us and we don't have the power to change it. And then the third and final one is resentment. But like, it's just real easy in this season to find someone or something you can resent. And that might be your family. It might be your work. It might be your school. Listen, it might be our church. Like you just find someone to resent and blame for this. And why am I pointing this out? Because I think it's important to understand how deeply triggering toward anger this season has become. I think you would be incredibly naive to think that you can just go through all of this loss, all of this resentment, all of this powerlessness, and not at some point have anger bubble up inside of you. I'm trying to point out that if you've been angry, if you've been frustrated, if you've been short with people, if you found yourself just completely impatient with this season, that doesn't make you abnormal. It makes you normal. It makes you normal. So here's what I want to say tonight, that the question isn't, when, or, or, or how do I never become angry? Like, I think a lot of Christians think that's the question. They think the question is, if I really want to be a follower of Jesus, how do I make sure I never get angry? How do I make sure I never get into a spot where anger or impatience or frustration wells up within me? But I don't think that's the proper question. See, I'm convinced that for the people of God, and we're about to see it in this story, for people of God, anger is not something we just avoid forever. It's something that is going to come, especially in circumstances like this. So the question isn't, how do I never get angry? The question is, what will I do with my anger when I feel it, when it wells up inside of me, when it gets triggered because of my powerlessness or my loss or my frustration or my resentment, when it gets triggered because of what I see on TV or what I saw on social media, what I heard someone say, when that anger gets triggered up within us, the question isn't, how do I avoid ever feeling angry? It's what am I going to do when I do become angry? I want us to see what's going to happen here in, in the story. And I want us to try to understand what, how to answer that question. What do I do when I become angry? In verse six, it's going to tell us this. It says that Moses and Aaron went from the assembly. 
And I think this is actually an interesting part of the story. See, the assembly is starting to grumble and everyone's angry. They're powerlessness. They're resentful. They're bitter. They're angry. They've lost so much. They don't know what the future looks like. They start to get angry. And you got to imagine Moses and Aaron are feeling angry as well. Like how dare these ingrateful people be mad at us and angry at us after all we've done. But what's the first thing they do? It's actually really interesting. The first thing they do isn't that they like pray right away. The first thing they do isn't that they like talk through their anger or talk to a counselor about it. The first thing they do, it says they went away from the assembly. And I think this is a really interesting thought. Like the first thing Moses and Aaron do when they get angry and when anger is starting to bubble up in their community is they step away from it. They move away. I want to talk to you about what to do when you get angry tonight. And I want to begin with the observation that the first thing you need to do, that you might need to step away from the anger. Like the first thing you might want to know is this, that you might want to walk away from the situation. To walk away from the situation to, to say, I'm not going to be involved in this situation. I'm going to step away from what's going on. I'm going to walk away from the situation that's making me angry. Sometimes that's a physical thing. Like sometimes you're in a conversation with people and it's just getting heated and you literally need to walk away from the conversation. You literally need to step away from the conversation and create space between you and the other person. For others of you, it's not an issue of a physical conversation. For some of you, you need to turn off your phone. Like you've seen things on social media, you see things online, you're on Twitter, Lord help us all. Like you're seeing the political conversation and it's making you angry. For some of you, the best thing for you to possibly do is turn off your phone, delete the app, exit the conversation. See, when anger starts to well up in you, sometimes the best thing to do is to walk away from the conversation. I want to give you an axiom that I've used throughout my entire adult life. I think it'll serve some of you well, especially those of you who tend to get wrapped up in fights and conversations. Here's the axiom. I do not have to show up to every fight I'm invited to. This is the axiom I try to live by when it comes to conflict. I do not have to show up to every fight I'm invited to. Just because someone's angry at me doesn't mean I have to get angry back. Just because someone sends me a rude email doesn't mean I have to respond rudely. Just because someone is wrong on the internet doesn't mean I have to tell them they're wrong on the internet, right? Like I do not have to show up to every fight I'm invited to. I think this is a significant thing. Uh, Aaron, he walks away. Moses and Aaron walk away from the assembly. And I think this is significant for us to see. I want you to see verse six here. It says, Moses and Aaron go from the assembly and to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And they fell face down and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. So I want you to learn here a little bit about what we're gonna do when we get angry from this sentence. Again, verse six, I think for some reason it might not be on the screen, but that's okay. We'll, we'll roll with it. Um, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down and the glory of the Lord appeared around them. Here's what I want you to see. Three different things, three different ways we can learn from what happens when we get angry, what happens when anger starts to stir up in us. Here's number one. Number one is when you're angry, seek the Lord immediately. Did you notice they, they, they left right away? Like things were getting stirred up and they left right away and they sought the Lord. It was like the first thing they did was step away from the situation that was making things worse. And then immediately they sought the Lord. And here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced you're going to be angry in life more than you would like to be. Maybe you're angry right now. Maybe you're angry at COVID stuff. Maybe you're angry at a boss. Maybe you're angry at next boyfriend. Maybe you're angry at your mom. Maybe you're angry at someone and you can't even describe why you're angry. And here's what I need you to know. The primary issue isn't if you're going to be angry or not. It's what you're going to do with your anger. And here's what I want to notice. That anger, I, I'd like to put it this way. Anger is kind of like trash in your house. You have garbage in your house. 
You probably have garbage in your garbage can right now. What do you do with garbage in your house? Well, you tie it up in a little trash bag and then you put it in the bigger trash can and then a truck comes and takes it away, right? Garbage is not a problem unless you fail to deal with it, right? Like if you tie up a bunch of garbage bags and just throw them in your garage for years and years and years and it starts to pile up, you're gonna have a problem with that, why? Because the issue isn't the garbage, the issue is that you didn't deal with it right away and in the right way. I think the same is true with anger. The same is true with anger. You need to deal with it immediately. Once it starts welling up in you, you don't let it fester. You don't let it sit there. The the Bible has this wonderful way of saying it. It says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and so give the devil a foothold. I, I wanna encourage you to be the type of person who says, if I'm angry about something, I'm going to deal with it before I go to bed. Anytime I'm angry, I'm going to deal with it before I get to bed. It doesn't mean it'll be fully dealt with, but I'm going to address it. I'm going to seek the Lord because here's what the text says. When we don't deal with our anger before we go to bed, we give the devil a foothold. And I think everyone who's been angry or bitter or outraged with someone knows what that's like. Like you've had this anger with them and suddenly it's all you think about. It's all you talk about. You wake up in the morning mad and the devil gets that little foothold in your life. And so here's the first thing we want to do. We want to seek the Lord immediately. Here's the second thing we want to do. We want to seek the Lord in community. We want to seek the Lord in community. Like you'll notice that it's Aaron and Moses and they go away together. It's not that Aaron goes one direction and Moses goes the other. It's not that Aaron gets really mad and goes and sits on a rock and stews and overthinks it and gets up in his head about it. No, they go together because here's what they know. The temptation when you're angry is to isolate The temptation when you're angry is to get up in your own head, to overthink the situation. Like, listen, the temptation when you're angry is to have an argument with someone that you win handily, but you never actually had it with them because you had it in your own mind. You ever done that game where you have like this good zinger and then like in your imagination, they're like, I was wrong, right? And like, that's how you, like, it never works. You want to seek the Lord in community. You want to get wise men and women in your life who are willing to tell the truth to you. I'll just say this. If you don't have people in your life who are willing to speak the truth to you and never lie to you, you're missing out on a precious gift of life. Find people who are willing to speak truth to you. And when you are angry, get with those people. Get with the people who are willing to get around you, who are willing to handle your anger and are intimidated and scared by you, but are rather willing to point you toward Jesus. Moses and Aaron, they retreat together. They retreat in community. They deal with their anger immediately. They deal with it in community. And then here's the final thing. They deal with it in humility. They deal with their anger in humility. What do they do? They fall on their face before God. I heard a pastor say this, when someone gets up in your face, it's time to fall on your face, right? Like when someone starts stirring you up and getting you angry, it is time to get on your knees before God. Why go to God with humility? Two reasons. Number one, number one, the thing you might be mad about, the thing you are mad about, might not actually be something you should be mad about. It's possible you're mad about something and you have no business being mad about it. This is where I said at the very beginning, anger is that type of emotion where we always feel justified. And the reason we feel justified is because anger is your reaction to the world not working the way you think the world should work. So every time you're angry, it's because the world isn't working the way you think the world should work. And you, of course, being not God, might actually be in error sometimes. And here's what's wonderful. You can see all the time when someone else is angry and it's unjustified, but it's very difficult to see in yourself. That's why you need humility. Uh, Like, listen, uh, righteous anger, righteous indignation, it's a biblical concept. It's a biblical category. But here's the problem. Don't you always think your anger is righteous? (laughs) Aren't you always convinced that it's righteous anger? 
Like, it's very rare that people are like, you know what, I'm angry all the time, and it's completely irrational, right? Like, that's not how people function. We tend to justify our anger and feel good about our anger because someone wronged us, and the world isn't working the way we want it to work. The way we go with humility is this. Try this on. Your anger might be justified, but why don't you start with the assumption next time you get angry that it's not? Why don't you start with the assumption that this is unjustified, unrighteous anger? And then if it gets to the point where it really is righteous anger, okay, we can go with that. But why don't you start with the assumption that it's not, where you start with the assumption that your heart is desperately wicked and no one could possibly understand it, that you have been twisted up and your aim in life is to justify yourself. They go on their knees with humility. We seek the Lord with humility. One, because our anger might not be justified. And second, because of this, even if your anger is justified, you can still sin in the midst of it. Even if your anger is perfectly righteous and God's anger and your anger is perfectly aligned, you can still walk in sin. That's why that same verse we looked at in Ephesians tells us, in your anger, do not sin. Someone needs to hear me on this tonight. Your anger is not justification for your sin. It's not justification for you being rude and mean and condescending and harsh. It is not justification for you talking down to someone, abusing someone, harming someone, doing something to someone that would bring them harm. Your anger is not justification for sin. That's why the scriptures are going to say in your anger, don't sin. This is why Moses and Aaron are on their face right now. They're going, God, like it's so possible for us to sin in this way. They seek the Lord immediately. They seek it in community and they seek the Lord with humility. It goes on this way in verse seven. The glory of the Lord is shining around them. And in verse seven, it says, the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, take your staff, you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. This is interesting, isn't it? They're angry. People are angry at them. Tension's rising, impatience is going out of control. Everyone's in a bad spot. They come before the Lord, and God does what God always does. And you might think it's a miracle, but that's not what's happened yet. It's not that God always does a miracle. It's not that God always impresses us with some sign or some wonder. God does what he always does. God speaks. Like I need to remind someone tonight who's forgotten this, that we believe in a God who speaks. We believe in a God who has something to say to you. We believe in a God who has something to say to his church, who has something to say to people who are angry and upset and frustrated and mad. We believe in a God who speaks. The great claim of the Christian scriptures is that there is a God who has something to say. He wants to reveal himself to us. He wants to show us what he's like, and he wants to tell us how we should respond in this world. And here's just some real practical wisdom. I just want to speak to someone here tonight who's angry who's angry at a person in your life, angry at a situation, angry about a boyfriend or a girlfriend, angry with your parents, angry with the world, angry with the governor or the president, or angry with something going on right now. If you are angry, I want you to read your Bible. And I know that sounds like so crazy simple, like the pastor told me to read their Bible, check, right? Like that's what you're supposed to do. Here's what I need you to know. Like in your anger, the most foolish thing you can do is assume that you've got this thing. The most foolish thing you can do if you are angry is assume that you've got this thing together and you're going to be fine and you don't need anyone else and you've got this thing and you're strong. No, the scriptures tell us something entirely different. If you were here last week, you heard it. I want you to hear it again. James chapter 4 verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And how do you humble yourself before the God who speaks? You listen to him. 
You listen to what God has to say. You get in the Bible. Like, listen to me. I'm not saying if you're angry, read Bible verses about anger. I'm saying if you're angry, read Bible verses, period. If you're angry, go to the word, humble yourself before God. The way we humble ourselves before the Lord is we go, God, you have something to say to me and I'm angry right now. I'm angry about the world. I'm angry about the situation, but I'm gonna humble myself before you because I believe you're a God who speaks and I don't wanna be an arrogant Christian who thinks I can do this without your word, God. Like I don't wanna for even a moment believe that I can operate in this world with all its complexities without listening to you. This is what they do. They go to God, they fall on their face before God and God speaks to them. And at this point, it seems like everything's going right, right? They, they sought the Lord immediately. They sought him in community. They sought him with humility. They're listening to God speak. Everything seems to be going so well. And then in verse nine, it goes this way. It says, so Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. So things are going well so far. God says, take your staff, walk over to this rock over here, speak to the rock and it will gush water out of it. Here's what it says in verse 10. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and Moses said to them. So again, everything's going well so far. Moses has the assembly gathered in front of this rock. He has his staff just like God told him to do. He's done everything God wants for him, but then it goes wrong. And it says, Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. And this may seem like such a small moment to you. This may seem like such an insignificant part of the story. But, but I want to try to ask you the question, was the command for Moses to strike the rock with his staff once or twice? And the answer is actually the command was not for him to strike the rock at all. The, the command was not for him to strike the rock. It was to speak to the rock. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, wait a second. I think I know that Moses was supposed to strike this, strike this rock once. That's true. This is in Exodus chapter 17. This happens before. And God says, take your staff, strike this rock. Water will gush out for everyone. But here he says something different. Here he says, I want you to speak to the rock. And it's really interesting in this moment that despite attempting to deal with his anger, Moses who's like the hero of the Bible, okay? Moses, who's actually written as the most humble person alive in the world. Like Moses, this incredible saint, this incredible follower of God, this incredibly faithful man, he snaps in this moment. And you can see him snapping when he says, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Like in other words, you people aren't even worth my time. What do you think I want with you? And then it says, Moses raised his arm and struck the staff or stuck the rock twice with his staff. He disobeys God. And we're gonna see the consequences of him disobeying God in just a moment. But I wanna to try to point this out to you because I think this is significant. Um, Moses disobeys God because he has lost his patience with God. He has lost his patience with his people. He has lost patience with the situation. He has lost patience with everything. And so rather than speaking to the rock so that it might bring out water as God told him to do, instead he strikes it with his staff because he has lost patience. And here's what I need to say to us tonight. I think this is the principle that we're about to see in the scriptures here. It's true for Moses. It's true for you. That impatience is not permission to violate God's commands. I'll say that again. Impatience is not permission to violate God's commands. Just because you've grown impatient with the situation, just because you've lost patience with the person doesn't mean you get to violate the clear commands of God in scripture. That's exactly what Moses does here. He's lost patience with the situation. So rather than speaking to the rock, like God said, he strikes it twice. He has lost patience and he's violated God's commands. Like I need you to know that remains true today. 
Your lack of patience with something or someone does not justify you sinning. The fact that you're impatient with your dad and the way he acts and the way he's lived and he's done this for years, the fact that you've lost patience with your dad doesn't mean you get to dishonor him. That the fact that you have lost patience with your boss doesn't mean you get to gossip about her. That the fact that you've lost patience with your roommate or with your sister or with your best friend doesn't mean that you get to treat them any less than the God of the universe commands you to treat them. See, the truth is impatience is not justification for us to violate God's command. It is not permission for us to violate God's command. And here's where this just comes into clear focus for me right now. Um, well, one of the questions I've been asked often in the last couple months is, is, aren't you sick of all this COVID stuff? And I go, absolutely. People have even asked, like, as the church, like, aren't you sick of doing all the stuff you have to do with this COVID nonsense? And and meeting outside in mass and this whole like crazy stuff we have to do. Wouldn't it just be nicer to be inside? And I go, absolutely. People ask me, have you lost patience? And I go, I've totally lost patience. And that surprises them because they think the issue here is that I haven't lost patience, but you've lost patience. So you just have to wait out our church leadership until we lose patience on things. And once we lose patience, then we'll go back inside and change everything up. But here's what I need you to see. Like why, even though I've lost patience, like I've completely lost patience with this whole situation, with how long it's gone. I remember 15 days to slow the spread. You remember that? You remember 30 days? Then you remember it was like May and we're like, ah, summer's coming. I'll probably all go back to normal. Like I have lost patience with this. And yet here's the principle I see taught in the scriptures. My lack of patience is not permission for me to violate God's clear commands in the Bible. And Romans 13 so clearly tells me that I'm called to obey and submit to the governing authorities that God has put over me. And listen, I'm impatient. I'm done with it. I have disagreements. I have thoughts. I have opinions. If you ever want to talk with me, we'll go all day, right? Like I got plenty of opinions here, but my impatience is not permission to violate God's clear commands. And here's what we believe as a church. We believe God has a clear command for us that unless our mission or our ministry and our message are unable to occur, given the government guidelines, we're going to continue to submit. And so that's what we're going to continue to do. Not because we haven't lost patience. I have lost patience from time to time. But because patience, impatience, is not permission to violate God's commands. Uh, I want you to see how it goes on this way. It says um, at the end of verse 11, it says that water gushed out and their community and their livestock drank. And I think this is a really wonderful part of the story. So here's the people and they're complaining. They're actually wishing they were back in slavery. They're complaining against Moses. They're complaining against God. Moses gets angry. Aaron gets angry. Everyone's angry. Everyone's terrible. Everyone's awful. Everyone's the worst in this story. There's no hero in this story, okay? Except for, except there is a hero. And that hero's God, right? Like Moses is supposed to speak to the rock and instead he strikes it with his staff twice. He violates the very thing God wanted for him. He does the very thing he wasn't supposed to do. He's not a good guy. The people aren't good people. Everyone's a dirtbag. Everyone's terrible. And yet God sends water spewing from the rock. And it says that all the people there got to eat, drink, and their livestock. Remember, this isn't like a couple dozen people. This is millions and millions and millions of human beings drinking from the water God brought in the middle of the desert from the rock. This is the story here. The story of God's abundant blessing to sinners who don't deserve that blessing. Can I tell someone tonight that God blesses sinners? Not because you're good, not because you're awesome, but because that's the only type of person there is. God blesses sinners. But like to the person who's here not going, God would never bless me. God would never love me. God wants nothing to do with me. Maybe you're new to church. Maybe you haven't been at church in a long time. I need you to know that God blesses sinners like you and sinners like me and sinners like all of us because that's the only type of person there is. 
Like, can I encourage someone tonight that everyone in this story did everything wrong and God blessed them anyway? Everyone in this story did everything wrong and God was kind to them anyway. That's the God we serve in the scriptures. It goes on this way in verse 12. It says, but the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sights of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. So, so we just saw two things. Everyone's a mess. Everyone's terrible in this story. And yet God blesses anyway. Uh, and yet he's going to look at Moses and Aaron and he's going to bring down this judgment on them. He's going to bring down this punishment upon them because you didn't listen to me, because you didn't revere me as holy, because of what you just did, you don't get to go into the promised land. Like Moses just led his people out of Egypt across the desert. And he goes, you know what? You're going to die in the desert now. That's what's going to happen to you. You don't get to go into the promised land. Everyone else does. You're going to die out here. And that's how the story goes. Moses dies in the desert because of God's judgment here. And let me just wrestle with this question here. Like why were Moses and Aaron judged so harshly? Like maybe you wonder that. Like all he did was hit a rock instead of speak to it. Why is this such a big deal? Why were they judged so harshly? Number one, real simple. They disobeyed God. God had a clear command for them and they disobeyed. And if you think, well, disobeying God shouldn't mean his judgment, that's exactly what it should mean. And the fact that all of us woke up today after disobeying God so much yesterday is nothing short of God's mercy toward us. God's mercy toward us is that he doesn't judge us every time we sin. The question isn't why were they judged so harshly? It's why am I not judged so harshly every day? That's the thing. They disobeyed God. That's number one. They were supposed to speak to the rock. They struck it. But here's number two, and this is where it gets even worse. They misrepresented God. You know, when they got up there and they said, you people want water, you people are grumbling, you people were sick of you. You know what they did? They misrepresented God to the people. They misrepresented God as this God who didn't care about their physical needs, who didn't care about their real problems, who wasn't interested in the struggles of their life. And that is not the God we see in the Bible. The God we see in the Bible cares about people's physical, spiritual, emotional needs. God is into the well-being of his people. That's number two. They disobeyed God. They misrepresented God. And then the third and final thing, and this is the worst of all, they made themselves to be God. They made themselves like God. When Moses gets up there, he says, shall we bring you water from this rock? Like in other words, shall Aaron and I bring you water from this rock? But Moses and Aaron never had the power to bring water from the rock. Only God did. But they got up in front of the people and pretended to be the type of people who could provide in the way only God could See, God brings his judgment upon Moses and Aaron. And again, it might seem too harsh and it might seem too overwhelming. Like they don't get to go into the promised land and they have to die in the desert just because they hit a rock twice. But here's what I need to remind you tonight about our God. Two things. Number one, God is just and he hates sin. Like God is a God of justice, a God of holiness, and he hates sin. He hates the sin of the world. He hates your sin. He hates my sin. He hates that sin that you don't think is such a big deal and you kind of brush it away. He hates that sin. He hates the sin you do in private. He hates the sin you do in public. He hates the sin of the world. God hates sin because of his holiness. And I get that this is an unpopular message. This isn't like the popular message, like you're good, just keep doing you. But that is not the story of the Bible. The story of God in the Bible is not the story of a God who's good with whatever you're doing. It's the story of a God who is holy, who is just, who will never let anything slide because that is what justice is. If God didn't hate sin, God would not be just and there would be no justice in this universe. 
But, but the great claim about God in the Bible is that every sin, everything, he notices it, he sees it, he despises it. Every sin you do, every sin that is done to you, God hates sin because he is just. But here's the second thing you need to know about your God. Here's the second thing you need to know about the God we worship tonight. That God is merciful and he loves sinners. They're like, listen, God is just and he hates sin. But God is merciful and he loves sinners just like you, just like me, just like Moses and just like Aaron and just like the people in the story. And you go, okay, what happens for Moses? What happens for him? He doesn't get to go into the promised land. There's actually a beautiful story in the New Testament where Jesus is up on a mountain and Moses gets to appear there in the promised land. Like God redeems Moses' story anyway. Why? Because God is just, he is righteous and he hates sin. But at the same time, God is merciful and he loves sinners like Moses. He loves sinners like the people in this story and he loves sinners like you. And so tonight, I want you to hold those two things together in your mind. Like God is just and he hates sin. And at the same time, God is merciful and he loves sinners. So how do these two things work out? How do these two things come together? The answer is they come together in the cross of Jesus Christ. They come together in the cross of Jesus. See, listen, the cross of Jesus is the accomplishment of God's justice and the announcement of God's mercy. On the cross of Jesus Christ, every sin is paid for. Any penalty is paid. The justice of God is doled out, not on your life, not on my life, not on Moses' life, but on the Son of God, Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross. Like, listen, on the cross of Jesus Christ, God's justice falls not on you, but on Jesus. But then you need to know that on the cross of Jesus Christ, God's mercy is shown for you as well. God's arms are open wide. God's mercy is given to sinners. His grace, his forgiveness. You don't have to suffer for what you've done. You don't have to bear the punishment. Child of God, person who has Jesus in their heart and the Holy Spirit living inside your bones, there is no condemnation for your sin ever. Period. Anymore. It is done. It is finished. When Jesus cried out, it is finished. To tell us die on the cross. He meant it. It is all done. There's no more sin to be possibly dealt with in your life because Jesus has already borne the punishment, God's justice for that. And what's extended to you is nothing more than mercy. See, listen, tonight we talk about that as we move toward communion. I want to invite you to take these communion packets out. Our band will make their way up. Tonight as we move toward communion, we remember that the cross is this great announcement of God's justice that God didn't just let your sin slide. He didn't overlook your sin. He didn't forget about your sin. He didn't not notice your sin. He saw every sinful thing you've ever done. He saw every sinful thing you've ever said. He saw it all. And yet the great announcement of the cross is that God sees this and brings his justice, brings his punishment, not upon you, but upon his beloved son, Jesus. That's the story of the cross. That's the story of the gospel. That's the story we celebrate and remember when we do communion. But we also remember that God's mercy is extended and announced to us. God's mercy is given to us, the chief of sinners, those of us who have fallen short. See, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's broken for you. In just a moment, we're gonna take the bread and you can start unpeeling the top of this right now if you want. We're gonna take the bread here and we're gonna remember the body of Jesus broken for us, the body of Jesus bruised for us, that Jesus got beat up real bad on the cross so that you would stop beating yourself up for your sin. He's already taken it for you. He's already absorbed the cost for you. Tonight, I invite you to take communion all across this place, not because you're an awesome Christian, but because you failed as a sinner. I invite you to take communion, not because you've done everything right, but because you recognize that you haven't and you need a savior who can rescue you. 
Tonight, I want us to take the bread, if you would take it in your hand right now. And I want us to eat in remembrance of the body of Christ broken for us. In the same way that night, Jesus took the cup. After giving thanks, he said, this is the cup of my blood, the cup of the new covenant, of my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. To the young lady out there who feels like you've sinned too much, to the young man out there who feels like you're too stuck in some kind of sin, some kind of thing for God to possibly love you. Jesus gives us this physical reminder that we would take from time to time to remember that Jesus's blood shed on the cross actually fully, finally, completely forgave you of your sin. There's nothing more, there's nothing less than Jesus' blood shed for you and the forgiveness of your sins. Let's take tonight in remembrance of him. This is the astounding mercy of God. That God would look upon us as sinners. God would look upon us in everything we've done and every place we've been. That God would look upon someone like Moses and someone like Aaron and someone like us and consider us worthy of being in his family. Consider us worthy of dying for. This is the astounding mercy of God. And tonight I want to invite you to celebrate that. As we sing, as we reflect on communion, I invite you to know the incredible mercy of our God. Let me pray. God, thanks for tonight. Thanks for communion. Thanks for the opportunity to come before you in prayer. God, I pray for the person who's even taking communion tonight, but is even ensure that he believes he's forgiven. Pray for the young lady who's taking communion, but isn't even sure that her sins, her past are actually wiped away in full. God, I pray tonight you would drive that gospel truth deep into their hearts. God, may we walk away from this place knowing that we are great sinners with a great savior in Jesus Christ. May we celebrate that mercy tonight. Help us do that as we walk through this life, as we deal with the emotions we deal with, as we deal with everything in this world. God, help us to know you well. We pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. I want to invite you to stand, to sing, if you wouldn't mind putting back on your mask as we rejoice in God's mercy together.